This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, going from chapter 15, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 15. In reverence for God's word, if you are able, please stand. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Paul with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria to Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatra, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be with you and to uh, worship alongside you and to proclaim to you from God's word um, and to preach. It is a joy 
We are going to be taking a quick break this morning from our, our series uh, that we are currently in on First and Second Peter. And our passage this morning, as was just read, is from Acts chapter 15, moving into uh, chapter 16, ending in verse 15. And if you're going to be following along in our Pew Bibles, I want you to know that you can find these passages on page 924. Again, page 924 if you're following along in our Pew Bibles. Um, I say this to our, our youth group kids on a regular basis. It's, it's a wonderful and a glorious thing that we can read God's Word in our own language. And in fact, people have shed their blood. People's blood has been shed so that we could enjoy this luxury of being able to read God's Word in our own language. And so I encourage everyone, whether you have an app on your phone or you have a pew Bible in front of you or you're following along with the printed uh, word in the bulletin, to, to follow along as we work through these series of stories that we see in Acts chapter 15 and into 16. And as you're turning in your Bibles or you're opening up your apps, I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background information about where we are in the book of Acts and kind of how we might understand what's going on. So in our, our English Bibles, the book of Acts comes after the gospel according to John. And that can be confusing because when the book was actually originally written by Luke, it was meant to function as a second volume to the Gospel of Luke. And so you had part one, which was the Gospel according to Luke, and then you had part two, the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke kind of points this out in the beginning of Acts. If you were to flip back, you don't need to do this, but if you were to flip back to the beginning of Acts, Luke says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And so for Luke, as we're reading the, the Acts of the Apostles, he sees this completely connected to what he has already talked about in his gospel. And in fact, for, for Luke, what Jesus began to do in person in the gospel, he now continues to do in his church by the Holy Spirit. And so they're intimately connected. And so when we look at the beginning of Acts and we try to understand the context of the stories we're going to read this morning, I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus is anticipating happening in this book. And Jesus tells his disciples that. He tells us what his plans are in the beginning of the book of Acts. He says, so when they had come together, his disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus gives kind of a structure, a plan of action that his disciples should embrace. Now, I think we can all, for a moment, understand how the disciples must have been feeling. They've, they've witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And they're ready to continue the work that Christ wants to do. And they want to participate in what he is planning to do. They want to seek the kingdom, but they really don't know what that means. They really don't understand what that all is going to entail. And so Jesus gives them this final lesson. And he says, listen, seeking God's kingdom is not about having all the answers through wisdom and cunning and understanding, but it's simply about following the Holy Spirit. And so it begs the question, well, what is the strategy of the Holy Spirit? And how do we follow him? 
Our passage this morning, these series of stories that we're going to be diving into, they give us a beautiful picture of what this might mean. They help us see what following the Holy Spirit might look like and how we can fully participate in what Jesus is planning to do among us. And so again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, seeing how this fleshes itself out. But before we dive into the text, would you bow your heads with me as we pray and ask God's help to understand his word? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for calling us to worship you today. We thank you so much for giving us songs and time of confession and especially your word that we might hear your voice and know your will and that our hearts would be uh, made alive by the Spirit so that we could not only be saved but walk in the newness of life that you have for us. Would you speak to us this morning by your word so we know what it means to follow the Holy Spirit and to fully participate Jesus, with you, Jesus, in what you are planning to do among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 15. Growing up, and, in, and even to this day, I have a real deep appreciation for the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And the two most well-known works of J.R.R. Tolkien are The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And there are others that, you know, those of you who are really passionate about J.R.R. Tolkien are going to come afterwards and say, you forgot about the Cimmerillion, you forgot about the Unfinished Tales, and I know about those. But growing up, I was utterly fascinated and loved The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And as I was growing up, when I was younger, I was really drawn to the epic trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. I just loved Tolkien's world building, and I was really inspired by the character Frodo. Frodo, who is a hobbit, he's a small type of creature who lives in a town called the Shire, is really has his eyes bigger than his hometown. He longs for adventure. He wants to be involved in something that is bigger than himself. And so when the opportunity arises for him to be involved in this epic tale, he jumps at the challenge. And as a kid, I loved that. My hometown was boring. I loved the world that J.R.R. Tolkien was creating, and I just listened to you know, the radio dramas and read the books and watched the movies and was really inspired. But as I get older, I find myself actually identifying with and actually enjoying the character of Bilbo Baggins way more than Frodo Baggins. And here's why. Bilbo Baggins is a homebody. He's Frodo's uncle and the main character of the story, The Hobbit. Some of you might have read or seen or know about this story. And what I love about Bilbo Baggins is his needs are not that complicated. He really just wants to enjoy the company of good friends. He really just wants to enjoy the blessings that has been bestowed upon him in the Shire, and he wants to be in bed by 10 o'clock. And I can't blame the guy. The older I get, the more I go, man, Bilbo, you had the life, this beautiful, idyllic cottage in the country until Gandalf shows up. And Gandalf the wizard comes into Bilbo's house and cleverly and, un and unbeknownst to Bilbo enlists him in this adventure with these rowdy dwarves who need some significant help in their lives. And I'm not going to tell you the story of the Hobbit. Because while the Bible is really the, the only must-read book, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy are kind of a close second. You really need to read these things. You really need to experience these stories. But there's a significant lesson that we learn in the life of Bilbo Baggins. And the, the lesson is this. If we cling to the good things in our lives, like being in bed by 10 o'clock, or having good friends, 
or having a, all these blessings that have been provided for us, we can actually keep ourselves from fully participating in a life-changing adventure. If Bilbo were to cling to his shire, he would not have been able to fully participate in what Gandalf was enlisting him to do. And this can also be true of our Christian lives. This is what we are going to see in the passage this morning, is that you and I can actually let the good things in our lives keep us from following the Holy Spirit and fully participating in what Jesus wants to do among us. And so in light of this very real danger that we could actually be disengaged from what Jesus is doing among us, we should be asking ourselves the question, how can I ensure that my life, that our lives are truly in step with the Holy Spirit? And our passage this morning, the series of stories that we're going to be looking at, they teach us this. If we are going to follow the Spirit, then we must be willing to surrender the good things in our lives to God's perfect will. And so in our passage, passages in these stories, we're going to be following the Apostle Paul as he embarks on his second missionary journey. And on this journey, he and his companions are going to model for us what it means to surrender good things so that they can follow the Spirit. They're going to show us that if we are going to follow the Spirit, we need to be willing to surrender our relationships to his will, our freedoms to his will, and even our plans. And so let's dive into the text and begin. The first story is going to teach us that if we're going to follow the Spirit, we need to be willing to surrender our relationships to his will for us. So Acts 15, verses 36 through 41, you can follow along. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Caesarea, strengthening the churches." So Paul and Barnabas, they had just finished their first missionary journey together, and they had just delivered this wonderful news from the Jerusalem Council, which was, if you are a Gentile, you do not need to act like a Jew in order to be saved. And they're going through all these churches, giving that information, and everyone is rejoicing, and the churches are strengthened. And so they want to keep doing what they've been up to. They want to go to churches that they've planted, and they want to give this news so that God's people would be strengthened. But unlike their first missionary journey, this second missionary journey isn't marked by unity in the beginning. It's marked by a deep disagreement. Both of these men want to follow the Spirit. They have a conviction about where God is leading them. And yet they disagree deeply on what that means. And through this first disagreement, this first story, we're going to learn that if we're going to follow the Spirit, then we have to be willing to surrender relationships that are meaningful to us if they're truly misaligned with where God has us going. So Paul and Barnabas' relationship, we can see it in the text here, it's a truly a meaningful relationship. But let me just give you a little bit of background about how meaningful this relationship was. Barnabas in Acts 4 is 
described as one of the first converts to Christianity in Jerusalem. He is known for selling property and giving the proceeds to the apostles. He is known in Acts 11 as being a trustworthy individual that the apostles are going to send up to Antioch so that he can check on these new believers, these first Gentile Christians, as it were. And Barnabas, upon hearing Paul's conversion story, is the first person in Jerusalem to actually believe that Paul is now a Christian. You got everybody in Jerusalem knowing that Paul had killed and murdered and persecuted the church. And Barnabas hears his testimony of what Christ had done to him on the road to Damascus. And he goes, I believe you, Paul. Let me get you connected with the apostles. And so this relationship began where Barnabas really saw God working in Paul's life. And Paul partnered with Barnabas for the work that he was already doing in Antioch. And so the church at Antioch and the church at large really saw Paul and Barnabas as this team. And in fact, the Holy Spirit even saw them as a team because in Acts 13, there's a specific call right before the first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. And so Paul and Barnabas' relationship was very significant. It was a relationship that mattered a great deal to both of them. And yet this relationship, no matter how meaningful it was, it did not trump the relationship that these men had with Jesus Christ. And so when push came to shove and there was a misalignment between where God was calling one of them and where God was calling the other, they prioritized the relationship that they had with Christ. No relationship was more meaningful to Paul and Barnabas than Jesus. And so we see in this example that if we are going to follow the Spirit, sometimes we will need to sacrifice, we will need to surrender those meaningful relationships. And we see this beautifully described in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus teaches his disciples and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. But it's important for us to understand Paul and Barnabas, they didn't just separate because of sinful or selfish reasons. This disagreement wasn't born out of pride. It wasn't born out of a, a, a misalignment that was wrong. Instead, we see in verses 37 and 38 that the reason for their disagreement had to do with this guy by the name of John called Mark. So John Mark had journeyed with them on their first missionary journey but he had abandoned them prematurely. So really, John Mark had dropped the ball. He had left them high and dry. And Barnabas, and scholars think that Barnabas was the cousin of John Mark. Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance. He says, listen, I know this guy left us high and dry in our first missionary journey, but I think we should give him a second chance. And Paul says, no way. That guy abandoned us, and that is going to be detrimental to this second missionary journey if it's going to be successful. And they disagreed deeply about whether or not that was a good idea. So much so that it says in verse 39 that it was a sharp disagreement. This is also translated explosive disagreement. It would have been super awkward for everybody in the church at Antioch. You would have had these two leaders wanting to go in dramatically different directions. But both Paul and Barnabas were not willing to give up the call that they knew God had placed on their lives. Now, the question really that we need to be asking when we look at this is, can we see God in this? Can we see people going in different directions and say, yes, God is in this? 
And I'm going to point to some passages here that I think point to the fact that God is absolutely in this disagreement. In verses 40 and 41, we see that Paul is commended by the brothers and he goes off and he is strengthening the churches in Syria and in other areas. But what about Barnabas? What happened in the life of Barnabas and in the life of John Mark? It's really important for us to understand that John Mark, scholars believe, is the same person that wrote the gospel according to Mark. And so in a very real sense, if Barnabas hadn't given John Mark a second chance and sailed with him away to Cyprus, it's very likely that uh, John Mark wouldn't have been inspired, wouldn't have been encouraged, wouldn't have changed in order to be useful in the future to the ends the Spirit would have been leading. And to make things even more amazing, scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is the first gospel to be written, which means other gospels like Matthew and Luke, the first volume to Acts, that used Mark as a primary source for research. And so in a very real sense, what we see as our Bible is the fruit of Barnabas saying, this is where God is calling me and I am not going to abandon that. And we should give thanks for this disagreement for when we see Paul and Barnabas willing to sacrifice a meaningful relationship when they realize that their missions are misaligned. Katie and I, my wife Katie and I, we have a close friend that we met in college. And this friend for her entire Christian life has felt that God has been calling her and preparing her for international missions. And it's been really beautiful and wonderful for us to walk alongside her and to see all this preparatory process, going to a Bible college and kind of getting aligned with a missions organization and getting ready to leave the United States and to go to another country uh, to share the good news of the gospel. And this last year, this friend of ours experienced a really significant trial in this regard. As she was ramping up and getting prepared and finding out all these partnerships, a guy started to take a romantic interest in her. And this was, this was wonderful. She has always wanted to be a wife. She's always wanted to have kids. And so to have someone be interested in her um, as she's kind of getting prepared for missions, she's thinking, wow, this is a wonderful thing. And yet I'm really challenged with what I'm supposed to do. And it's really amazing and I am so blessed to call her a sister in Christ because this person, our very good friend, surrendered that relationship to God and broke off that relationship. And she did that because when she shared with this person, this person who was being romantically interested in her, I feel God is calling me to international missions. The guy said, listen, I like you. I have no intention of doing missions. And she said, then I have to choose missions. And that is a wonderful and a beautiful example of what it means to surrender our relationships so that if they are misaligned, we can follow the Spirit. But it's not just missionaries that are called to follow the Spirit. If you and I are going to follow the Spirit, we too need to be willing to surrender our most meaningful relationships if they're misaligned with His will for us. Perhaps you're being called to surrender a relationship so that you too can go on international missions. I'm not going to rule that out. You really should ask the Lord if that's what he has for you. But it is also possible that the Holy Spirit is just asking you to surrender your regular church relationships so that you could follow his leading and meet somebody new during the coffee hour. It could be that simple. 
Perhaps it's not about the coffee hour. Perhaps it's about being willing to surrender your relationships with other Christians in Rochester so you can be more fully involved in what's happening here at Grace Church. Perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps you're spending too much time with the Christians here at Grace Church and, and to surrender would mean to give up those comfortable relationships so that you can spend time with coworkers and friends who don't know Christ to share the gospel with them. I don't know how the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart to lead you to understand what relationships need to be surrendered, but we all are called to do that. Our first story shows us that we need to be willing to, to sacrifice and to surrender these relationships if they're misaligned. But the second thing that we see in these passages is that if we're going to follow the Spirit, not only do we need to be willing to surrender our relationships, we also need to be willing to surrender our freedom in order to walk according to the Spirit. Look in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observances at the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul and Barnabas have separated. Barnabas goes with John Mark to Cyprus. We know how that turns out. And Paul partners up with Silas, and he begins his second missionary journey. And as he goes to Lystra, he and his partner Silas are introduced to a young man by the name of Timothy. Now, Timothy is known for three things that we see in this passage. One, he is half-Jewish. His mother is a Jew, but his father is a Greek. He also has a really good reputation among the Christians as being a man of God. And last, everybody knew that he wasn't circumcised. It's a strange thing to know about somebody, but in that culture, it would have been common. Paul feels that it's really important for Timothy to join them on their mission to strengthen those churches and to share the news of the Jerusalem Council. But the reality is, is that if Timothy joins them on this mission, he's going to be put in contact with both Jews, Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians. And because of Timothy's background of having a Jewish mom and a Greek dad who did not obey God's law and have their sons circumcised, they would have been incredibly skeptical and even doubting of Timothy's character. It would have inhibited Timothy in the ministry that Paul wanted him to join them in. And so what we see is that Timothy is willing to be circumcised in order to join them on that mission. But it's strange, right? Because the, the news that they're trying to bring to the churches is you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So what's going on here? Timothy had every right to look at Paul and to say, listen, I want to join you on your mission I'm not going to do that. I am not going to put myself through pain and agony and frustration just because the Jews have an issue. My character is fine. Everybody knows that I'm an upstanding guy. And the truth is, I don't need to be circumcised to be saved. This is the Jews' issue. It's not mine. But Timothy doesn't do that. Timothy 
shows us in this profound moment a beautiful picture of what it means to surrender our freedoms in order to follow the Spirit. So we should ask ourselves, when should we be willing to surrender our freedoms? And in this story, I think we see two things. We should be willing to surrender our freedoms if our freedoms ultimately define us. You can see everybody knew who Timothy was and where he had come from. Everybody knew that his mom was a Jew. Everybody knew that his dad was a Greek. And everybody knew that they were disobedient to God's law that Jewish kids need to be circumcised. And so Timothy, recognizing that this is an aspect of his character that defines him, he doesn't cling to his right to say, listen, I'm, I can do whatever I want. I can choose to be circumcised. I can choose not to be circumcised. Because of the freedom that I have in Christ, I get to do with this situation whatever I deem right. But Timothy, recognizing that if he's going to cling to that identity, if he's going to cling to that freedom that he has, he's actually going to limit his effectiveness and his witness in the world. And so if our freedoms define us, ultimately they're going to inhibit us. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. We should be willing to sacrifice, be willing to give up and surrender our freedoms, not only if they ultimately define us, but also if they inhibit our witness. Paul taught Timothy well. In fact, he discipled him to really embody this reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. It is crucial for us to understand that Timothy chose to be circumcised not because it led to his salvation, but because it led to him being more enabled to follow the Spirit and to participate in what Christ was doing. A really beautiful example of this is the life of Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham is known as the pastor of presidents. He has served or had served as spiritual counsel for 12 sitting presidents in the United States, from Truman all the way to Barack Obama. And when Richard Nixon was in the White House, Billy Graham was welcomed there consistently, to the point that Richard Nixon actually offered him an opportunity to be an ambassador to another country, which Billy Graham said, no thanks. Now, we all know how Richard Nixon's presidency ended. And it really caused Billy Graham to take a step back and to recognize that he needed to consider his political freedom, his ability to be defined as a Republican or as a Democrat. If Billy Graham was going to follow through on where God was calling him to minister, he needed to recognize that sacrificing his political freedom, as it were, was very, very important. And actually, he reflects on this later on in his life. Billy Graham says this, 
As an evangelist and an ambassador for Christ, we cannot be too closely identified with any particular political party or person. We have to stand in the middle in order to preach to all people right and left. I have been, haven't been faithful to my own advice in the past, but I will be faithful in the future. And Graham knew that if he was going to cling to this political freedom that he had, it would truly inhibit his witness to future world leaders and the ministry that God had called him to. But it's not just Timothy. It's not just famous evangelists that are called to do this. We too need to wrestle with the fact that we have freedoms in our lives that we need to be willing to surrender if we're going to truly follow the Spirit. In our day and age, because most of our culture doesn't believe in God, political issues are ultimate things. And so the question of are you a Republican or are you a Democrat or are you part of the Green Party or are you Libertarian, all of these different expressions of political allegiances, these are ultimate issues for people. And the gospel demonstrates that not only does God care very deeply about justice and political order, but that the gospel transcends all of that. I think it's very important for us to understand that God does care about political issues and his word does address many things that we can bring to the levels of government. But we need to ask ourselves this really, really important question at this point in our history. Are we going to be known more for our political stance than for our gospel witness? Because if we want to plant our flag, if we want to really identify ourselves with a polit particular political party, what we are going to find is that it actually inhibits our witness as Christ's church. But it's not just our political identities that we need to be willing to surrender. Maybe your identity, the freedom that you express is wrapped up in your career. Perhaps it's inhibiting your witness because you are staking your identity and your freedom in that. Or perhaps it's wrapped up in your family or in your parenting. Your flag is so firmly planted in the way that you parent or in the way that you have your family structured that it's inhibiting your witness. Whatever freedom is inhibiting us, we need to be willing to surrender it if we are going to follow the Spirit and fully participate in what Christ is doing. So those are the first two stories, but the stories keep on going. It says that not only should we be willing to surrender our relationships to follow the Spirit and our freedoms, we also need to be willing to surrender our plans. Look in uh, the last set of, of stories here. We see in chapter 16, verses 6 through 16. We see in these passages two different stories that are merged together. Paul and his band of companions, they're now seeking, now that they've strengthened all the churches that they've planted, now they want to go and they want to speak the word of the gospel around the world. They want to plant more churches. But instead of things being easy for them and where they want to go, you'll notice in verses 6 through 10 it says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them in verse 7. And in verse 6 it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so instead of things being easy, all of a sudden there's a real struggle to understand where this mission, the second missionary journey, is going to go. 
And it's in these passages that we see that if we're going to follow the Spirit, then we need to be willing not only to surrender our freedoms and our relationships, but the plans that we have made, whether they're the courses that we set for ourselves or the routines that we find regularly in our lives. So when we look at the, the first verses, 6 through 10, we see three different times where Paul said, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this thing, and then God said, nope. And maybe you've been there in your life. You've set a course for yourself, a type of study. You've set a course for yourself, the type of family that you want to have. You've set a course for yourself of where you're going to move and how you're going to get things done when you get there. And God might be just shutting those doors. And most of us, when we get those doors slammed in our face, we think, oh man, God must not be in this. And our passage is demonstrating, no, God is definitely in that. We, instead of being discouraged by the slamming of a door, need to turn and to say, okay, God, if that's not the course that is set for my life, then what is? In this passage, we see the proverb really beautifully demonstrated. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Paul had grand ideas as to what church planning was going to look like. And yet time and time again, God said, nope, not there. Nope, not yet. Nope, not now. And so he turned to God and he asked for him to provide the plan. And what happens? God provides a dream and says, don't go here, don't go there, come to Macedonia, which was nowhere near any of the other cities that Paul and his companions were around. They had to basically travel to the other side of the known world to fulfill this call. But because Paul was willing to surrender the course that he had set for himself, he was able to follow the Spirit. And it says in verse 10 that when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. But it's not just the big picture that Paul needed to surrender. He also needed to surrender his regular routines. If you look at the last story that we see here, it's entitled in your Bible, The Conversion of Lydia. I want to point out a few things to you. It says in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Now we can read that and we can say, Okay, big deal. They got to Philippi, where Christ had told them to go in Macedonia, and he shared the gospel, and someone came, became a Christian. That's a wonderful and a beautiful thing, but what's special about it? It's important to know that didn't look anything like what Paul was expecting to do in Macedonia. Paul's missionary journeys are marked by a very specific strategy. Paul would go into a town and he would look for a synagogue. And the reason he would look for a synagogue is because when you go to a synagogue, they're reading God's word. 
And he would be able to go to a synagogue and reason with the Jews and say, look, the scriptures point to Christ. You need to be saved through Christ alone. And it was a very predictable strategy. And sometimes it was met with great success. And other times it was, you know, filled with opposition. But it was regular to Paul. This is how he did ministry when he was out doing missionary work. But we don't see that in Philippi. In fact, there's no synagogue in Philippi. Scholars think that in order for, well, they think, they know that in order for there to be a synagogue in a city, there needed to be at least 12 Jewish men. And we don't see anything like that in this story. When they get to Philippi, someone says, oh yeah, you're looking for people that pray and people that want to talk about God. Yeah, they're outside of the gate. We don't really, like, they're not really welcome in the city. They have to go outside and they do their worship thing and then they come back sometime during the week. I don't really know, but you'll probably find them by the river. And you just think, like, Paul's going, all right, I guess we're just going to go to this backwater place of the city and figure out who's worshiping God there, I guess. And so they go, and what do they find? And don't take offense. They find a bunch of women. And in this culture, that's like nobody. Now, women, you are somebodies. But in that culture, Paul would have shown up and been like, okay, all right, uh, I guess we're not going to be interacting with influential people in Philippi. Let's just share the gospel. And the Lord opens Lydia's heart to hear the gospel and to believe it. And here's the beautiful thing, guys. If you're a Christian and you live in the United States, you are a spiritual descendant of Lydia because she's the first convert in Europe. And so we see in this story that when Paul was willing to surrender the course he had set for himself and his regular routines, he was actually able to engage in what Christ was trying to do among them and be able to follow the Spirit. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be consistently crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our more important tasks. But it's a strange thing that Christians and even ministers will frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will not allow anything to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. The life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is truly inspiring because Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a tremendous amount of influence and was utterly brilliant as a theologian. And so he was given an opportunity to seek asylum in the United States instead of in Nazi Germany that he lived. And Bonhoeffer took that opportunity. He moved to the United States, but when he got here, he felt a burden and a longing and a spirit-led command, you need to return to Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written several letters saying that if he did not do that, if he did not give up asylum and the course that he had set for himself and go back to Germany, he would have been irresponsible to the calling that God was placing on his life. And so he did return to Germany. And when he got back, he was arrested for speaking out against Hitler. 
And when he was arrested, he was sent to a concentration camp, not back to his seminary. And when he got to the concentration camp, he wrote letters, and he interacted with prisoners. And one day, they killed him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred for his faith because he chose to follow the Spirit. Yet even in prison, there are beautiful letters and testimonies as to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer was letting God set his course and order his routines in order to truly follow the Spirit. And I don't think that if Dietrich Bonhoeffer were here today, he would have done it any differently. I think he would have said to, I think he would be saying to us, listen guys, if you want to follow the Spirit, you need to be willing to surrender what you think you're going to be doing with your life, whether that's in the big things or in the little things. Because perhaps like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you have a flourishing career, but God is calling you to ministry or to minister in some particular way that you aren't already doing. Or perhaps you're wrestling with a really important decision in your life right now. You've got a really important move coming up in your life. You have a change or a beginning of a career, or you're hoping for or expecting a new baby. In all of these things, we ought to surrender the plans, the courses that we've set for ourselves and the routines that we have so that we can follow the Spirit. So in closing, guys, there are these three stories that if you just read them, they feel so disconnected outside of the narrative of what we could be learning. But they show us that if we're going to follow the Spirit, we need to be willing to surrender the good things in our lives so that we can obey the will of the Spirit. It's important for us to understand that the reason that we should do this, the motivation, what gives us the strength and the model for what we're about to do and what to embark on is not Paul. It's not Timothy. It's not Billy Graham. It's not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The reason that we should surrender good things is because this is what we see in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, a letter written to the church of whom Lydia is the first convert, Paul writes this, Church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ surrendered his relationship with the Father so that we might be reconciled. Christ surrendered his glorious freedom as the Son of God so that we might be set free from sin. And Christ surrendered his plans to the will of the Father so that you and I, when we put our trust in him, might be saved. It is truly because of his obedience, his death on a cross, that sinners have any good things in our lives. And so it's this picture, Christ crucified, this life of a person surrendered to the following of the Spirit, the life of Jesus that the Holy Spirit wants to shape you and I into. 
And so it's my hope, it's my prayer that we would take this call seriously, that we would surrender the good things in our lives so that we can truly follow the Spirit and truly participate in what Christ wants to do among us here at Grace Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the surrendered life of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you that he endured great suffering so that we might be reconciled to you. That he surrendered and sacrificed great freedom so that we might be set free. Lord, I pray that that would be impressed upon our hearts. That as we consider the relationships in our lives that may be misaligned, when we consider the freedoms in our lives that might inhibit our witness, and when we consider the ways that our lives are headed, the courses that we've set, that all of these things would be surrendered and submitted to you. Thank you for enabling us and strengthening us for this sacrifice through your Holy Spirit. May we take great joy and find great joy in what we get to do with Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.